Between February 1555 and November 1558, 289 people were executed for their beliefs in England and Wales. All but one were burned at the stake. Another 24 died in prison after being arrested for heresy. It's a terrible episode that English historians have traditionally blamed on the Catholic Queen Mary Tudor. But, like almost all episodes in England's Catholic history, modern scholarship shows that this one's been badly misunderstood. We've been investigating it, not in any way in order to excuse what happened, but to try to understand it. We feel we owe it to the victims to get the story straight. So far, we've seen that after Mary's marriage to Philip of Spain in July 1554, it is much more likely that Philip was running affairs in England and Wales than that Mary was. He governed not just with the assistance of his impressive Spanish entourage, but mainly through a small select council of highly experienced English courtiers. And the Catholic campaign against heresy bears all the hallmarks of this little council. But that is very odd, since almost all of them had for decades been faithful servants of Henry VIII and Edward VI, pushing forward their Protestant agenda. In our last discussion, we saw that more than half the heretics who were arrested came from a few small areas of eastern England, and that these areas had long been known for their religious dissidents. In some cases, their reputation went back long before the Reformation, well into the 15th century. In other words, it is possible that the people who were being burnt were not Protestants at all, but held much older beliefs. They belonged to traditions that by the 1550s neither Catholics nor Protestants would tolerate. In fact, the Protestant regime of Edward VI had been preparing to start rounding them up when Edward unexpectedly died. Might all this explain not only why this rather Protestant council so mysteriously pushed on with this Catholic campaign, but also why so many heretics were found and burned at the stake? <laughs> Oh, good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk about historical stories everyone knows. We want to try out some new ideas. I'm Penelope Middlebow. And I'm John Roseback. And we're revisiting stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. By plotting the origin of the people burned at the stake between 1555 and 1558, we've discovered that a very large proportion, in fact a majority, came from remote areas along the Kent-Sussex and the Essex-Suffolk borders, along with the Essex town of Colchester. These were particular parishes which had a long history of old religious dissidents dating back long before Protestantism had ever appeared. Is this what the burning of heretics under Philip and Mary was really all about. As we've discovered over and over again in this series, it helps to compare England with the rest of Europe. Historian William Monter has studied the 16th century inquisitions across Europe, and he discovered that something like two-thirds of those they ended up burning were what he described as Anabaptists. Now, it's a bit of a catch-all title, but the important thing is that it embraces people whom both Protestants and Catholics condemned as heretics. As the Protestant Reformation split communities and countries, 
religious toleration had begun to ebb away. By the 1540s, as we've seen in our previous discussions, confessional lines of what you could and could not believe, Catholic on the one side, various strands of Protestant on the other, had become starker than ever before. And it seems that the main victims of this deepening divide, at least in the rest of Europe, were old local strains of religious belief, perhaps tolerated, overlooked in the past, but now increasingly condemned. In England, historians used to call a similar strain of local dissident religion lollardy, with a rather romantic notion that they'd been Protestants before Protestantism had ever been invented. But lollards weren't Protestants. They held a variety of views that no mainstream church would accept. It was these people, not Catholics, that the Protestant Inquisitions being set up at the end of Edward VI's reign were intended to catch. Can it be that this was also true of Mary and Philip's Catholic persecution? Now, we've been using historian Thomas Freeman's database of the English martyrs from the 1550s. It was published in 2005. It doesn't give much information about the beliefs of those who were burned. About what, 7% are listed as religious radicals, but over 80% of the total are simply down as no evidence. But this may in itself be significant. The reason is that the evidence Freeman is using here comes almost entirely from the writings of the Elizabethan Protestant John Fox. And Fox, as historians who've been through his papers have discovered, was extremely reluctant to say anything about the beliefs of anyone among the victims who was not an Orthodox Protestant like himself. Take the ten people burned outside the Star Tavern in the Sussex town of Lewis on the 22nd of June 1557. It was one of the most shocking episodes in this entire story. All but one of them came from that remote area along the Kent and Sussex border known as the High Weald. One of them, Marjorie Morris, had already been in trouble in 1551, so that's two years before Mary came to the throne. She'd been in trouble for failing to attend Protestant communion. Her husband was also refusing to pay Protestant church tithes. Another of them, a servant called Alexander Hosmer or Hoffman, also came from a family with a history of descent long dating back to before Philip and Mary. These people were now being condemned by a Catholic government, but they had in the past also been condemned by Protestants. Well, Fox has nothing to say about almost any of the ten people burned at Lewis that day, and that's significant. Historian Patrick Collinson has looked much more closely at Fox's accounts of martyrs burned from Kent or in Kent around that area. Hunting through Fox's own papers, he finds plenty of stories about people like Marjorie Morris and Andrew Hosmer who'd been in trouble before for refusing to attend Protestant communion. He also finds many pages Fox had obtained from the original investigations. But Fox omitted to use this material in any of the many editions of his book. In some places, Collinson found it was obvious that Fox had torn pages out from the original records and destroyed them. The reason seems to be that these individuals were not brave Protestants fighting against the forcible reimposition of Catholicism. They were heretics who, for example, openly denied either the humanity or the divinity of Jesus Christ. John Fox, unusually for his day, was opposed to burning anyone and faithfully recorded each of the martyrdoms. But orthodox Protestant preacher that he was, it seems that he deliberately suppressed the information that individuals such as these would have been burned by any government from the Middle Ages to the Elizabethan regime under which he was writing. Well, we find the same pattern in Essex. 
Fox also possessed the papers from an investigation we've looked at before into heresy around Mother Bristow's tavern in Colchester back between 1527 and 1531. That's under Henry VIII. Now, you remember, perhaps, that 39 of the 40 accused recanted. But Fox doesn't use this material in his book because he discovered that these people also professed beliefs that no Christian church of the period, whether Catholic or Protestant, would have tolerated. And then there's the four people burned from Stoke Nayland in the Star Valley in Suffolk in 1557. The village had a history of religious nonconformity going back to at least the 1520s, flaring up again in the mid-1540s. In 1556, it was reported that most of the villagers refused to receive Catholic communion. Finally, four were arrested and burned. But as historian Dermot McCulloch points out, their beliefs were again so extreme that John Fox quietly omits to mention them. Now, technically speaking, it would be a weak argument from silence to assume that all the people burned about whose beliefs we have no evidence were extreme religious dissidents. Patrick Collinson suggests, for example, that in Kent anyway, those burnt between June 1555 and April 1556 were largely Orthodox Protestants, simply protesting at the return of Catholicism. And it was those burnt later who held older heretical beliefs. And we can see, indeed, that it's very roughly the case that the victims from the centres of old descent, the High Weald, the Star Valley, the Mendelssohn area, do tend to come from later in the campaign, perhaps after any initial opposition to Catholicism had gone. And you have to add that there were also other areas long known for old heresy, like the Chilterns, north of the Thames Valley, which did not suffer many burnings under Philip and Mary. So, until someone really gets to grips with the local history of all this, there's going to be a lot we won't understand. But comparing what happened in England with what happened in the rest of Europe, it does seem that here is at least part of an explanation for the alarming numbers who now went to the stake in England. It was a cruel reckoning for old, rural, very local beliefs that didn't fit into either of the battle camps, Protestant or Catholic, that were now carving up the religious landscape between them. It would have happened under Edward had he not unexpectedly died so young. His councillors then found themselves carrying it out under Philip and Mary. But even this doesn't explain the biggest question of all. Why proportionately were more people burned in England than anywhere else? Heretics so cruelly burned for their beliefs under England's Catholic monarchs Philip and Mary mostly came from just a very few locations. Noticeably, they were remote parishes situated on county and diocesan borders. It suggests that a significant proportion of these victims may not have been Protestants at all, but followers of much older local systems of radical belief. They were the deeply unfortunate people that every government across Europe, including the government of the Protestant Edward VI, was clamping down on in the 1550s. But why were there proportionately more victims in England than anywhere else? There's no credible evidence that the authorities were harsher in their judgments in England than anywhere else. It seems unlikely that there was significantly more old heresy in the muddy and remote corners of Essex and Kent than anywhere else. Let's examine one case, that of Richard Woodman. He was one of the ten people burned for heresy at Lewis in Sussex on 22nd of June 1557. 
Historians Eamon Duffy and Paul Quinn have filled out Woodman's personal history. He was a well-to-do iron founder and a preacher from Warburton, just on the Sussex side of the High Weald. He'd been arrested as a heretic in June 1554 and imprisoned for 19 months, including a spell in the King's Bench prison. Woodman had in fact been questioned at least 26 times, including by Edmund Bonner, the Bishop of London, who we've met before. He was finally released, having agreed to moderate his views slightly. Let nobody any longer say as they used to that investigators like Bonner weren't trying to avoid burning people. But then Woodman had gone back to preaching exactly as before, and by 1556 it was obvious the authorities were after him again. So then he hid in the Wilden Woods for three weeks and finally fled across the channel. But then Richard Woodman came back. Well, he was soon denounced, it seems probably by a rival in the iron business. This time he was questioned by the Bishop of Chichester, who in fact invited him to dinner and offered him several easy chances to escape and flee the area again. But this time Woodman was having none of it. Which is why, in June 1557, he ended up at the stake in Lewis, with eight poor folk from the Weald and one local woman from the town itself. Woodman's story throws up two possible causes of the wholly unexpected escalation of burnings after March 1555, which must, as we've seen, have appalled Mary and Philip and their court. The first is that local people may have used the heresy inquiries to settle local scores, just as Woodman seems to have been betrayed by a business rival. Well, until much more local history has been done, there's no way to discover whether local feuds may have led to more individuals being denounced as heretics in some places than others. But, well, we do have some clues. We know, for example, that Colchester... Which was one of the centres, the worst places for burnings in the 1550s... ...had long been a bitterly divided town. During the investigations of the late 1520s under Henry VIII, it was found that four out of the town's ten aldermen had connections with the religious distance centred around Mother Bristow's tavern. The arrest of these heretics was then followed by a bitter campaign against the town's clergy, accusing them of rape and other sexual crimes. Similarly, local studies at Cranbrook and Rye in Kent, both noted for heresy, have shown them also to be particularly divided towns. Well, much more striking and intriguing is the parallel between the burnings for heresy and the later burnings for witchcraft. Historian William Montes pointed out that after about 1560, the burning of heretics across the whole of Europe dies down, but was then apparently replaced by the burning of witches. In fact, ten times as many witches were burned as heretics. Now, what exactly the relationship was between burning heretics and burning witches remains something of a mystery. Certainly nothing as simple as religious hardliners transferring their attentions from one target to another. Were witches always women? No, they weren't, but they were mostly. What is very striking is that in England, Essex was by far the worst place for the burning of witches, the Stour Valley being among the harshest areas. Kent was also bad, if not as bad as Essex. Exactly the same areas, in other words, as had suffered far more than their fair share of the burnings for heresy. And we also know from a very famous study by sociologist and historian Alan McFarlane, originally completed in 1970, that the Essex witch burnings were very largely triggered by local feuds at the level of the village and the parish. 
it seems to suggest that local 16th century Essex society was peculiarly divided by local disputes that were so bitter that neighbours were willing to send each other to the stake. I grew up in Essex. No comment. The overlap of Essex witch burning and heresy is not exact. The former came from largely agricultural occupations, the latter from more rural crafts. And we don't have a Macfarlane-style analysis of the burnings for heresy. But the geographical match is very striking. It suggests, anyway, that the concentration of denunciations for heresy in certain areas may have been a result of a bitterly divided local society. But, well, while this might help explain why the heretics in a few particular areas of England were handed over to the authorities, while in other places they were perhaps left alone, we can't surely really suppose that overall English society was more divided than any other in Europe. So this still doesn't really explain why there were proportionally more burnings in England. Let's go back to the story of the well-to-do iron founder and preacher Richard Woodman. Here we find another pointer, one that is altogether darker and harder to grasp. Over and over again, the Sussex iron founder was offered the chance to escape burning. You recall he was let go after Bishop Bonner had persuaded him to agree to a slight change in his beliefs. But Woodman had gone back to preaching as before. Once the authorities were onto him again, he'd escaped across the channel. But then he'd come back. After his re-arrest, he was actively encouraged at dinner to slip away by the Bishop of Chichester. But he refused, even though he can't have been in much doubt about the consequences. Now, of course, we nowadays say that nobody should be forced to flee for their beliefs under the threat of burning at the stake. But as we've seen, in the 1550s, it appears to have been accepted by virtually everyone in every state across Europe that the secular authorities would dictate the terms of religious life. Anyone who wouldn't accept them would just have to go and live somewhere else. Richard Woodman apparently took a deliberate decision not to. What makes Richard Woodman's apparently quite deliberate decision to stay and face the stake so important is that it's a pattern we find again and again. Historian Eamon Duffy has shown that the high-profile Protestant preachers seized early on in Mary's reign, before the start of the burnings, were often held under house arrest and they were given plenty of opportunity to run away. They were even offered royal pardons. But they didn't take them. And the same was true of many of the ordinary folk arrested once the burnings began. Look, take the case of Simon Miller. He was a farmer, a literate man he could read and write, originally from Middleton in Norfolk. He was imprisoned by the Bishop of Norfolk for heresy. But then he obtained permission from the bishop to go home, where, according to Fox, quotes, he continued a certain space while he had disposed and set there all things in order. What, in fact, Miller did was to dispose of his property. Middleton's just three miles from King's Lynn, which was then an important port, so Miller had every opportunity in the world to get on board a ship and get safely away. But instead, he made his own way back, trudging the 40 miles to Norwich, and turned himself into the bishop. There, according to Fox, he, quotes, reaffirmed his faith. Around the 13th of July, 1557, Simon Miller was burned in Norwich. Or take another case, Elizabeth Folkes, a 20-year-old servant from Stoke Nayland, which was one of the Essex centres of heresy. She was accused of heresy at Colchester, another centre. Bishop Bonner questioned Folkes at the White Hart pub in Colchester. 
Trying hard to let her go, he simply asked her whether there was such a thing as the Catholic Church. Now, that was something that Christians of all denominations could and still do assent to. When she agreed this was something she did believe in, Bonner let her go and sent her to her uncle's house in the town. But Folks was apparently so distressed at the idea that she had somehow betrayed her faith that she insisted on returning to the White Heart. And there she launched such an outspoken attack on Bonner and the Catholic Church that in the end, the bishop had no alternative but to deliver a verdict against her. Folks was burned at Colchester on the 2nd of August, 1557. The thing is that this refusing to accept the opportunity to run away was a much more widespread pattern than any of us have realised. The pattern of inquisitions across Europe was that the judges working for the church tried long and hard to find ways to let people off. They tried to moderate accused people's beliefs just enough so that they could let them go home and keep their heads down. In England, it's clear that judges like Edmund Bonner, Bishop of London, tried to do the same. But all too often, Bonner and the others found that the accused simply refused to accept the way out even when they were handed obvious opportunities just to run away. Legal historian Philip Cavill has looked at the records of the property forfeited by those burned for heresy. You recall that the English practice, which was established at the end of 1554 under Philip and Mary, was different from that on the continent. In Italy or Spain, it was the Inquisition that seized the victim's property, often as soon as they were arrested. It was used to fund the Inquisition itself. But in England and Wales, the victim's property was strictly protected, in fact by the newly re-enacted medieval heresy laws. The church wasn't allowed to profit in any way. The process of assessing and taking possession of the victim's estates involved a great many lay people, which is further evidence that the burnings were widely accepted in English society. But it also generated a great deal of paperwork, and where they survive, these records have a significant, if little noticed, story to tell. Take the case of the Munt family of Great Bentley near Colchester in Essex. William Munt, a husbandman, and his wife Alice were among 22 suspects from the area who were sent to Bonner, the Bishop of London, for questioning in August 1556. Bonner, as usual, searched for an acceptable compromise. The Munts and the others all accepted a vague recantation and returned home. We can hear Bonner breathing a loud sigh of relief. But by the end of the year, the months and their friends were again meeting in each other's houses for their own services instead of going to the parish church. Then we discover from the legal records that in January 1557, William Munt went along to the village court and there he had his land formally transferred to his 15-year-old son from an earlier marriage. Well, having put their affairs in order, the months now launched an aggressive campaign of haranguing parishioners as they came to church, calling them, quotes, church owls, and telling them that the bread and wine were nothing but, quotes, a blind god. Well, inevitably, they were denounced by the other villagers, and they were re-arrested. But this time, the months refused any compromise, and on the 2nd of August 1557, they were burned, with eight others in Colchester, including Rose Allen, Alice Munt's daughter by an earlier marriage, and three more of the people who'd been arrested with them and released a year earlier. Horrific. 
Philip Cavill has shown that this pattern of putting your affairs in order and then deliberately getting rearrested is far from uncommon. Now, some of those who refused the opportunity to walk away were preachers, whether, like John Rogers, one of the first to be burned, or Bishop Hooper, who was burned so horribly at Gloucester, they were ordained clergy, or others, like Woodman, self-appointed preaching laymen. Their refusal to abandon their publicly proclaimed beliefs is perhaps understandable, even if their refusal to grab the chance to escape is less so. Most of those who went to the stake were poor, and escaping abroad might not have been much of an option for them. But slipping into the next diocese was, in fact, as we've seen, it was a time-honoured practice going back for centuries. What's perplexing is that this time, so many of them chose not to take it. They stayed and ended up at the stake. Of course, the other way out was signing a vague recantation and keeping your head down. It might have been uncomfortable, but at least it saved your life. And that, very noticeably, is what the better off were doing. After Mary's accession in 1553, countless well-to-do individuals simply shut their mouths, went along to Mass and kept whatever Protestant thoughts they might have had to themselves. That was what Henry and Edward's former councillors, William Paget, William Peter and the rest, were now doing while they sat on Philip's select council. That's what Mary's Protestant sister, Elizabeth, was doing. That was what the fanatically anti-Catholic William Cecil was doing. He would later be Elizabeth's chief minister for almost the entirety of her long reign, pushing her against her will to persecute the Catholics with the most brutal torture and terrible, grisly executions. But under Philip and Mary, William Cecil was outwardly a practising Catholic. Even the Archbishop of Canterbury, Cardinal Reginald Poole, held beliefs that would have been widely described as Protestant, specifically Lutheran. But he too kept his head down and got on with his job as a Catholic cardinal. What will have taken Paget and Peter and the other councillors completely by surprise is the adamant refusal of so many poor English people, despite long and insistent attempts by men like Bishop Bonner to take the chances they were offered and walk away. It meant that the tally of deaths spiralled far beyond what anyone could have expected. Well, how do you explain this unexpected option among the English poor and vulnerable in the 1550s to stand by their beliefs, even to the stake? Well, several historians have pointed to a new kind of literature coming from the continent from the late 1540s. This new European writing argued that true believers, whether they were Catholic or Protestant or neither, should stand up for their beliefs, even to death. It scorned making a show of conformity. It called it Nicodemism, after the Jewish teacher Nicodemus, who appears in the Gospels as a believer in Jesus, but only secretly, because as a man of some position, he was afraid of the authorities. There's a great story about Nicodemus and Michelangelo that's been pointed out by art historian Anne Dillon. She's shown that Michelangelo held various Protestant beliefs that the Catholic Church had outlawed during the 1540s. In 1547, he carved himself as the figure of Nicodemus in his sculpture of Christ being taken down from the cross. At the same time, in a brilliant act of defiance, he painted himself as Nicodemus in an enormous fresco he was commissioned to make right in the Pope's own private chapel. Well, Michelangelo was a friend of Cardinal Poole's and they shared many of the same religious ideas and both kept their heads down. 
According to the historian and overall, this new late 1540s so-called anti-Nicodemite literature, quotes, pulled no punches in the psychological battle to make faint hearts into martyrs. And we know that it was being read in England. The historian Brad Gregory has shown that in the 1540s and 1550s, Dutch Anabaptists, condemned, you recall, by both Protestants and Catholics, were also producing many books with a similar message, emphasising that true believers had to suffer for their faith. Many of those who went to the stake in England, as we've seen, were religious dissidents akin to these Dutch Anabaptists. Was it then that this new literature was what was leading so many to refuse every opportunity of escape and to insist on going to the stake? We know that several of the leading Protestant preachers condemned by Philippa Mary's heresy investigations refused royal pardons and chose instead to die for their beliefs. We know that so-called anti-Nicodemite literature appeared in the late 1540s and insisted that religious dissidents should suffer rather than conceal their beliefs. It might perhaps help to explain the baffling number of people who were accused, questioned, let go, and then apparently went out of their way to get arrested again. But it really doesn't seem enough on its own to explain the surprising number of burnings in England. After all, Thomas Freeman's list of martyrs suggests that only about 20% of them were literate and could have read the anti-Nicodemite literature for themselves. Of course, they might have heard a preacher talk about it. Anyway, there was anti-Nicodemite literature throughout Europe, and the numbers of those going to the stake were proportionately much lower there than they were in England. What we're still searching for is something that was specifically different about the campaign against heresy in England from what happened elsewhere. Just possibly there's a clue in a sermon, we heard about it before, preached at court on the 10th of February 1555, just as the campaign was getting started. It was preached by Philip's Spanish chaplain, Alfonso de Castro. That Sunday, Castro gets up a court and he looks out over Philip and Mary and the assembled courtiers. Well, listen to what he has to say. Remember that Castro is a man of considerable experience in inquisitions. In 1547, he'd written the standard textbook. Now, what Castro says is that the English are making a mistake by ignoring the long-proven method used by the inquisition. Castro says that the questioning of suspects should be done as in Spain, quotes, in private and not before the people. The English councillors were insisting on public debate, or at least, as the historian Eamon Duffy has pointed out, semi-public conversations in chapels and bishops' residences. They decided that it was important that justice should be seen to be done, which was a very laudable aim. But in practice, all that will achieve, warns Castro, is to give the heretics a platform and to feed what he calls their longing for, quotes, empty glory. Much better, he says, to follow the Spanish method and to talk to suspects away from the public eye, so that some kind of compromise can quietly be worked out without anyone losing too much face. In fact, quizzing accused heretics privately and coming to a quiet agreement was also the way things had used to be done in England. 
Historian Craig Dalton has shown that the arrival of new religious ideas in the universities in the 1520s had been met with a tough official response, but it was conducted behind closed doors. Quotes, educated heretics and those toying with heresy should be reformed in their opinions through private persuasion. Heresy trials were only to be a last resort for those whose learning had led them into full error. In February 1526, during Henry VIII's reign, at a public burning of certain heretical books, the saintly John Fisher had publicly offered anyone with religious doubts of any kind to share them with him. And he stressed anyone could do it completely, safely, in private. To come unto me secretly and break his mind at more length, I bind me by these presents both to keep his secrecy and also to spare a leisure for him to hear the bottom of his mind. And he shall hear mine again, if it so please him, and I trust in our Lord that finally we shall so agree, that either he shall make me a Lutheran, or else I shall induce him to be a Catholic, and to follow the doctrine of Christ's church. I love that. He wants to hear the bottom of their minds. It's great. Historian Craig Dalton concludes, quotes, It was much more sensible to deal with accused heretics quietly, in private, through individual persuasion, than to burn them and risk creating martyrs. The fact that Henry VIII's Cardinal Wolsey didn't burn heretics used to lead historians to think that he was soft on heresy. But as Dalton concludes, it actually shows the success of Wolsey's policy of quiet, indeed secret, persuasion. But in the 1550s, Philip and Mary's councillors were committed to transparency. Religious policy was now, after all, a particularly sensitive issue. What were the recent brutal trashing of parish churches under Edward, and now the whole question of allowing everyone, rather uncomfortably, to keep all the church lands that had been stolen by Henry? Philip and Mary's councillors were determined to avoid any appearance of injustice. One of the very few documents we have from Mary herself, albeit in a 17th century copy, makes it plain that the Queen was extremely concerned that everything should be conducted in such a way that justice was seen to be done. The note was probably written in late 1554. People suspected of heresy, she wrote, were, quotes, so to be used that the people might well perceive them not to be condemned without just occasion. Obtaining confessions in secret, on the other hand, would only lead to suspicion that torture had been used. But the Spanish Inquisition expert Alfonso de Castro warned that articulate heretics just loved public debate because they wanted, quote, to be praised by everyone. And perhaps that was true of the well-known preachers. Bishop Edmund Bonner of London told one preacher, John Philpot, after many months of public wrangling, that his fellow bishops were complaining that Philpot was, quote, a frantic fellow and a man that will have the last word. I know a few of them. I think, I think we all do. But oh, this wasn't really the issue for the vast majority of poor folk accused of heresy. For them, it was the opinion of their families and neighbours that mattered. Let's listen to Bishop Bonner again. It's 1555, and this time he's talking to William Hunter, a 19-year-old apprentice from Brentwood. In fact, we've heard this conversation at one of our earlier discussions. It looks as though Bonner had managed to find, somehow, a quiet corner in which to talk to young William Hunter. I think thou art ashamed to recant openly, says Bonner. 
But if thou wilt recant thy sayings, I will promise thee that thou shalt not be put to open shame, but speak the word here now between me and thee, and I will promise thee it shall go no further, and thou shalt go home again without any hurt. Well, like Bishop Fisher before him, Bonner clearly understood that holding the hearings in public made it much more difficult for people like young William Hunter to give way. And uh, that was even harder, with accusations of Nicodemism hanging in the air. Hunter didn't accept Bonner's offer, and nor did many, far too many others. One thing that made the English campaign against heresy in the 1550s different from everywhere else in Europe was that its hearings were in public. That looked right, fair and just to the lawyers. But for many ordinary folk, confused and frightened, watching well-known preachers openly refusing pardons or compromises, it exposed them to the public shame of seeming to abandon their beliefs. It looks as though many who might privately have agreed to the compromises they were offered felt publicly compelled to go through with making a stand, even to being burned at the stake. And perhaps this also helps explain why so many, as we've seen, having already accepted a compromise and gone home, within a few weeks disposed of their property and openly began to court arrest and execution. Perhaps oh, the shame of having publicly seemed to disown their long-proclaimed beliefs was too much. If only the English had listened to the more experienced Spanish from the start, the numbers of poor folk who went to the stake just might have been far lower, as it was in other places in Europe. So this is our last discussion in the series, and it's been a complicated one, so let's just try and sum up. The death of over 300 heretics in England and Wales between 1555 and 1558 had much less to do with Queen Mary than we've been led to think. England was ruled by a joint monarchy in which her husband, King Philip of Spain, was clearly in charge. He ruled through a Consejo Cogido, a select council of highly experienced and able Englishmen, almost all of whom had been living and practising as Protestants. As the implications of the Protestant Reformation sank in, the room for ambiguity and compromise disappeared across Europe. Governments everywhere assumed that religious uniformity was essential to civil order and in country after country took up the task of eradicating religious dissidents. Two thirds of those executed for heresy in Europe were in fact neither Catholic nor Protestant, but held beliefs that none of the mainstream churches would tolerate. The peak of the burnings across Europe was in the 1550s, especially after the election of the Inquisitor Pope Paul IV in May 1555. So, look, the England of Philip and Mary was caught up in this terrible wave. Moves to begin hunting out heresy had already begun under Edward VI, but it was Philip and Mary and their councillors who found themselves carrying it out. We may imagine that Mary Philip and Philip's select councillors were as shocked as we are at the numbers. They would have expected, as everywhere else, that very, very few would cling to their old beliefs. But in the late 1540s, the mood had changed. Preachers had begun telling their humble hearers that it was better to burn publicly for their beliefs and go to heaven 
than to keep their beliefs to themselves and risk going to hell. Rich people with Protestant beliefs shut their mouths and quietly went along to Catholic Mass. It was the poor who burned. And Philip's English councillors had made a mistake. Ignoring the experienced Spanish voices around them, they insisted that the accused should be questioned in public. In the unforgiving light of public hearings, the illiterate poor now insisted on standing up for their beliefs, often in very old heresies they'd practised hidden in the marshy valleys and inaccessible woodlands for generations. Historian Thomas Freeman has described the result as, quote, unanticipated and unforeseeable. And we should agree. We should also add that it was utterly, unspeakably tragic. By June 1556, the news from Rome was that the new Pope, Paul IV, was becoming increasingly angry that his Inquisition was being obstructed. He was also becoming even more anti-Spanish than ever. And so Philip's forces invaded the Papal States in September that year. The notion that the campaign against heresy could now be reined back in England, where the Pope had convinced himself that even the Archbishop of Canterbury, Cardinal Poole, was secretly a Lutheran, was a non-starter. Elizabeth came to the throne in November 1558. In sharp contrast to the accession of her sister five years before, there was this time no spontaneous enthusiasm for religious change. For months, local parishes went on mending and even buying new Catholic ornaments for their churches. Elizabeth and her councillors executed more than twice as many for their Catholicism in one year, 1569, as Philip and Mary had executed heretics in the entire reign. They made it easier to seize Catholics' property than it had ever been to take that of heretics under Philip and Mary. They replaced the quiet process of discussions and compromises with brutal torture, iron shackles, forced starvation and excruciating racking that extended over many months. And the terrible but usually mercifully quick burnings were replaced with the merciless and deliberately prolonged agony of hanging, drawing and quartering. 120 years after Mary's death in the 1670s, as another Catholic monarch, James II, looked set to take the throne, the old memory of the burnings was energetically whipped up by his political opponents. It was only now, so 120 years later, that the glittering but tragic reign of Philippa Mary was transformed into the tyranny of Bloody Mary, an unhistorical insult that's never gone away. Protestant Victorian historians constructed the myth of the sick, crazed, bigoted and essentially Spanish woman, swayed by her over-pious emotions and needing to compensate for her infertility and for what they saw as her lack of ability, by a campaign of murder. It's only in the last generation that historians have started to uncover what really happened. In the end, we owe it to the victims to get the story straight. Bravely, standing up for their beliefs, many perhaps bewildered at the suddenness with which traditional compromises had disappeared. Some may be pushed by their preachers into refusing every avenue for a face-saving way out. Peace.